Keep your mind open to learning from other disciplines. I became increasingly aware of the fact that my students in graphic design knew uh, so little about the history of their field. And so I, I started to integrate design history content into my studio classes. Brodovich said something like, keep your fingers on the pulse of the times. And I, I like to interpret that to say that as a designer, or I think as any person that's intellectually curious at all, you really need to keep your eyes and ears open for ideas and for influences from other disciplines. And so you want to always be on the lookout for opportunities to um, expand your learning and your intellectual depth. On this episode of Design Dedux Podcast, we have Vignelli Distinguished Professor of Design, R. Roger Remington. Roger has also earned RIT's Eisenhower Award for Outstanding Teaching, the Trustee's Lifetime Achievement Award for Scholarship in Graphic Design. He is not only an educator, but he is an author, an archivist, and a design historian. Let's dive right into this podcast as Amanda and I welcome Roger Remington. Once again, welcome to another episode of Design Dedux Podcast, where we focus on creating success in design education. Today, we have with us a legend in his own right and known around the world, R. Roger Remington. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Peter, and glad to learn of your good work. Well, I appreciate that. We're ecstatic to have to have you spend some time with us today. Hey, can you give us a brief background on yourself and what kind of work you're doing currently? Well, I, um, I started out uh, uh, in, um, in high school, I'll make this, make this fast, but it was, I had no way of really understanding uh, uh, a career opportunity in, in creative work, um, much the less graphic design. My parents weren't designers, they were both uh, college graduates, but their fields were different. Uh, my art teacher in high, in high school was worthless. My guidance counselor in high school was even more worthless or less worth. Um, and, um, and so I really struggled. And it wasn't until one of my classmates, uh, in fact, he was a year ahead of me. Uh, it wasn't until he went to RIT uh, and studied graphic design and came home and told me what it was all about that I really began to understand and see. So I followed him to RIT. Uh, and then, uh, and of course, then it was uh, a really great time to be at RIT because the school was transitioning from being a kind of a Beaux-Arts art school, drawing from plaster casts and all that to a modern design program with faculty, for international faculty. And so suddenly, not only was my world expanded in terms of what I wanted to do, but also I had a bigger view of the world itself because some of my teachers, in fact, my closest teacher and mentor was from, from Berlin. And, uh, and, so, um, and so it was really a great uh, educational opportunity for me. Uh, I, I uh, finished at RIT and I still felt like I wanted more um, education. So I, um, I um, decided to do graduate school and thrashed around to try to uh, find um, the direction there. I'd already studied graphic design, so I didn't feel like I needed more design per se, but I was interested in really more art history and, and uh, 
and, and maybe even something like printmaking, which is kind of connected to graphic design. So I found that the University of Wisconsin in Madison uh, had a first rate uh, art school and really had faculty there that were uh, right, what I, right what I needed. And so that's where I went. And that's what I think, uh, uh, again, helped to advance my, uh, my uh, capabilities and uh, my preparation. Uh, I still felt like I wanted to practice design after that, it, but that waned after several years as I uh, really decided that I wanted to work more with students and young people and become involved in graphic design education. So I took a job at, um, uh, uh, it was a sight unseen kind of job opening at the last minute in August uh, at a school in Montana. And I loved it. It was great. I was the only graphic designer there. Uh, so I had my own world. Um, the country was beautiful. We were only 90 miles north of Yellowstone Park in a beautiful little town called Bozeman. Oh, yeah. And so I was there for, um, uh, for three years and then um, got the call to come back to RIT because uh, they were building a new campus. And there was a lot of opportunities for building there. And so um, back we came, and the rest of the rest is history. Uh, Fifty-seven years of uh, of uh, working there, uh, working one's way up from being an instructor to being an endowed professor. And, yeah, I definitely uh, want to give you a quick congratulations on your fifty-seven plus years because you are on paper retired, but still pretty active. That's the way it feels. I, I. Um, um, uh, I made the big mistake of saying to my to our new dean, who was wonderful. I said to him that uh, um, uh, after in retiring, I, I'd still like to be around and help you and support anything. So now we're working on a project which is actually going to be could be bigger than the Vignelli Center. You know? Oh wow! <laughs> oh wow! That's fantastic. That is awesome. Wow. Uh, so in that fifty-seven years, you've you've accomplished. I, I don't. I mean, we would probably spend hours just trying to, you know, get hash that list out. Um, but the, the Cary library, the Vignelli center for design studies and, uh-huh. and so much more. Well, let's, let's go back to kind of the, um, you know, I started out there as just a studio teacher of graphic design, but lo and behold, when I first came to RIT, one of my courses was a figure drawing. Can you imagine that? Um, but anyway, um, um, I was mentored, as I mentioned, by this uh, d- designer from Germany, and he was still there when I came back. And so we had some wonderful years kind of starting out. Uh, and um, as the time went on, I'd say once we were involved in the, in the, in the, what was then called the new campus, and this is about 1967, I, um, uh, I became increasingly aware of the fact that my students in graphic design knew uh, so little about the history of their field. And so I, um, I started to integrate design history content into my studio classes. And so we did, you know, posters, biographical posters, and where they'd have to pick Paul Rand or they'd have to pick uh, Sutnar or another designer. And... Uh, and learn about them a little bit. And I did that for quite a few years. Uh, And then the opportunity came up to teach um, uh, design history uh, in a formal way. And so I was teaching a survey course 
uh, for quite a few years, which, as I mentioned, was uh, was not the most ideal uh, situation. And that kind of morphed into my um, my uh, 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 teaching elective courses, and I've, I've done that for, for for I've done that for many years. But um, in about 1983, uh, we did a conference at RIT called Coming of Age. And one of my colleagues, Barbara Hodick, uh, an art historian, and myself organized this. And it was right at the time when there was a lot of kind of nascent uh, stirrings of people interested in history of graphic design. And so this conference was timed perfectly, and it really was a big launch to my career and my interest in history of design. Uh, we, everybody was at the conference. I mean, we, uh, uh, practicing designers, uh, Massimo Vignelli did the keynote, uh, Rudy DeHerrick was there, uh, Lou Danziger was there. I mean, all the great uh, uh, people along with other faculty and students, it was a huge success. And it really launched um, uh, my own focus in, in many ways. Um, and from that time, I really be, I realized that if I was going to continue to to uh, um, uh, have any kind of uh, real in-depth uh, resources in terms of graphic design, I really needed to have some archives of designers. And so that's when the um, project with the Cary Graphic Design Archive began. And uh, the first um, uh, the first archive, I'll just uh, describe that one. Um, uh, my friend Barbara and I were doing an, uh, an article for CA, a biographical article on the Lester Beale, the great American designer. And so we uh, we called up and wanted to visit with Beale's family. Uh, he had passed away, but his wife was still alive. His daughter was still alive in Connecticut. So Barbara and I went down and we interviewed them. And uh, that was great. And our article was published, et cetera. But then a few weeks later, we got a call from uh, Beale's daughter that um, uh, Lester Beale's widow, Dorothy, had uh, had uh, was ill and uh, she had to be in a nursing home. And do, did we want his archive? Well, I had no budget. I had no place to put it. I didn't know how big it was and so forth, but I went to the dean then and I asked him and he said, let's do it. So he paid for a truck and I got a couple of grad students and away we went and we found a place to put it and we got some a couple of our NEA grants to hire an archivist to organize it. And so that was our first archive. Wow. And then, uh, and now there are 50 different collections in the Curry Graphic Design Archive. That's astonishing. Wow. And so that this has been going on for all these years, and I've been collaborating with the library people. They're wonderful. Um, and then uh, at the same time, concurrently, uh, I've been, uh, I was developing uh, a, a close friendship with Massimo Vignelli. And um, uh, and uh, and I mostly Massimo. I didn't really know Lola as well until until we really did, uh, got into doing the center. But Massimo knew that we had uh, all the collections up there at RIT, and he said, "You know, I want my work to be with my colleagues, with my friends, my contemporaries." So he um, so over a period of years, with a lot of negotiations and so forth, the. The, um, the, the idea of a Vignelli Center happened. 
the the the, the difficulty was that it, his collection was too big to go in the library with the carry, so it required its own building, which really increased the magnitude of the of the project. But we were doing it at a perfect time. We had the stars were lined up. We had the right dean. We had the right president. We had the right provost, and uh, we raised a million dollars. RIT came through with $3 million. And think about that, $3 million wow. to support graphic design. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's major. It is. And so for $4 million, we, uh, we created the building that you can see behind me. The brick part uh, over my shoulder is where the archives are. And the glass part, which is uh, behind my head, is the uh, offices and two galleries, exhibit galleries. And, uh, and so this really becomes a, uh, a major uh, resource for RIT and something which really extends beyond what's over at the Cary Graphic Design Archive because, it, because the Vignelli collection is a complete, uh, a complete collection. It's not sometimes just a, um, uh, a partial collection. And, uh, and, the, and the exhibits uh, exhibit space and the uh, and so forth. It makes for a, a, a tremendous, uh, very specialized kind of design center. Uh, and uh, and so this, we have now been 10 years into the operations of the Vignelli Center. And, uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's really been a, a going, uh, going operation and really supported the School of Design, the Graphic Design Department, particularly we've worked closely with our industrial design program at RIT. In fact, my successor there, uh, Josh Owen, is, uh, was the chair of industrial design. So that's kind of nice, too, because the Vignellis really didn't distinguish between uh, graphic design and uh, product design or whatever. They, you know, their motto was design is one. They really had this kind of Bauhaus idea that uh, there shouldn't be distinctions between design. And so um, my focus, my bias for the first 10 years has been in graphic design, uh, although we've, you know, we certainly had in, uh, industrial design uh, activities. But my successor is from industrial design. So going out into the future now, we'll kind of balance it up between industrial design and graphic design. And I'm very happy about that. Yeah, that'll be exciting. Josh is a great uh Great, uh, great guy. Talked with him a few times. That's right. Can, and, uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how, how you've taught history of graphic design over the years and perhaps how your approach maybe has changed? Well, having the, uh, having the archives is, is, is the center and the heart of it. And, uh, uh, and so the students in my class, uh, in my classes, uh, they learn from uh, uh, analyzing and touching real original source materials. For instance, they're, they're not looking at pictures or they're not looking at slides of the great portfolio magazine that Brodovich did, the three issues of that, but they're actually handling the real magazine. And so they can feel the texture, they can see the scale of it, uh, and I think that's a real important thing. And I think it's, it's one of the unique aspects of studying at RIT is that you have this opportunity to, because most schools uh, won't have that. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. I won't have the capacity for that kind of archival support. I remember um, holding the um, Lester Beale Rural Electrification Administration poster, uh, the yellow and blue one. Uh, mm -hmm. And the scale of that was, I think, the thing that I remember most. Uh, you know, I was expecting a simple poster, but I believe that's it's pretty large size. I can't remember its yeah. actual size, yeah. but it's yeah. Those uh, those posters are great. In fact, it's just a little side trip here. Uh, when we went down to um, those posters are very valuable, by the way. I mean, the last I looked, I think they were over twenty thousand dollars each. Wow. When we went down to um, uh, Connecticut with the grad students to get the Beale archive, um, you know, we were just packing everything in this truck, and, and I had, I think, three grad students with me. And as we were finishing up, uh, Lester Beale's daughter, Joanna, said to each of the students, would each of you like a Lester Beale poster? So each of those kids got a, and I did, forgot to, I didn't even stand up and say, could I have one too? I mean, that was the, that was the foolishness of it. But anyway, uh, um, um, uh, th that was a, a, an interesting moment. But yeah, we have those posters and we're, we're very proud of them and they're very historic. Uh, the other thing I haven't mentioned about, um, which relates to my teaching of graphic design is that um, in history, is the fact that having the archives uh, provided me with a basis for my own scholarly work, which I think has, has been very important because that's, and that's been able to allow me to really enrich and learn more myself, which again, the students can benefit from. So I, I've, um, I've written, uh, uh, well, let's see, there's four, four books here on the, on the table, this was my my first book, which is the um, um, uh, Nine Pioneers in American Graphic Design. Sorry, right. I remember that one. Yep. And um, and and this was co-authored with Barbara Hodick. And then the second book was um, uh, Lester Beale about Lester Beale, kind of a personal one. And then the third book was a kind of a survey book of graphic design from the 20s through the 60s, and this was called American Modernism. And then most recently, I've been uh, doing a, a books, book on, on Will Burton, the, the German immigrant designer to the U.S., which is the kind of the bridge between design and science. And uh, as we speak, I have... Uh, uh, sometime within the next year, there'll be a second book coming out on Will Burton in terms of uh, uh, information design and looking closely at some of his key projects in terms of the practice of information design. So the scholarly part has been um, important uh, in parallel to the teaching and the other uh, activities that uh, I've done. Um, the um, once I had the opportunity to begin to teach formally the history of graphic design, uh, I, um, as I said, I was teaching a big survey course, and then that kind of morphed over the years into teaching a series of elective courses, and uh, those were smaller courses, more seminar oriented, a junior level uh, undergrad. And uh, and I had a kind of a, an array of those courses that I taught. Uh, in different semesters, I would teach women design pioneers once, 
uh, one uh, semester, then the next one I would teach uh, 20th century uh, history of the magazine was an interesting one. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, I also taught a course on the uh, on graphic design and film. And that one was done with the uh, with a colleague at the Eastman Museum here in Rochester. Uh, and so we talked about Saul Bass and his film titles and all that kind of thing. Um, so I developed a series of kind of courses that were uh, were interesting to me and that I uh, I had a lot of success um, um, delivering them. And the students are very interested in them. And so uh, that, um, and then at the same time, I was also um, occasionally uh, teaching graduate level courses, which were more involved with uh, research and and uh, 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 and kind of an analysis and kind of really much more serious and rigorous scholarly work. Yeah. Do you think... Um... So over time, it changed then to more elective classes than that big, large lecture, you know, on the history of graphic design. And you felt that was more successful, uh, do you think? I think or? it was much more effective overall because, I, you know, I was, uh, the class was limited to like 20, 25 students. Oh, wow. And, yeah. um, and there, was, um, there was a lot of writing. There was a lot of analysis. There was a lot of... Um, uh, I really forced the students to learn to uh, ask questions, ask critical questions. So critical thinking was a very important part of the whole thing. And um, and so it became a very lively kind of um, environment. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. More more interaction. That's right. Uh, between everyone. And yeah. in your big class, you had, did you say 100, 120 students usually? Right. Right. And so that that seems to sort of limit the amount of engagement you could have with those students right. and really push that critical thinking. Yeah, there, there's um, uh, well, th that was li very limited in that, in that context. And also, the like, as I said, the, you had a, a minority of students in there that didn't want to be in there because it was a required class. And so they were always kind of a negative force, uh, which which made more work. Mm -hmm. um, um, you still had, you know, a, a strong nucleus of students that were interested, but but uh, it was just uh, it was just too big and too much of a struggle. Yeah, and that shift to those more intimate classes actually gives you an opportunity to, to talk more in depth on on subject matter too. So I think that's a benefit without a doubt. That's a major major thing. Yeah. So I would say most people recognize you as a design historian. Would you Would you say that? Do you think that's how most people recognize you? I think I think so. Uh, although I think uh, you know, there's always this struggle. I think with a lot of design professors. You know, are you going to be a practicing designer, or are you going to be a, a scholar? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's hard. It's hard to do. Very difficult to do both. Now, Josh Owen does both quite well. Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, yeah. But um, I've opted to be a, a teacher and a scholar. Okay. And is that I, what you'd probably prefer to be more recognized as, as a, as a teacher and scholar as yes, over yes. a design historian? The teacher would be first. Yep. Yeah. I, I would definitely agree with you with that being a former student of yours, which um, we haven't <laughs> mentioned yet. So yeah. It's For fantastic. better or worse. <laughs> right. 
Well, it, it must have stuck with me, Roger. It must have stuck with me because here I am teaching history of graphic design as one of my right. chosen courses to teach. I, mean, um, I, must have, I must have said something back then, Peter, that um, that really stuck with you or something. Yeah. Well, there is. Well, one, it was just this thought of like, how does he have so much information in his mind? <laughs> um, wow, this is great content. And look at all this amazing stuff. I don't know. I was just enthralled. So, um, well, you know, I think I think a lot of it has to do with just the fact that, uh, uh, um, like like other professors in other areas, uh, you know, you you have a passion for what you're doing, and that right. passion is really boundless. Right. Uh, and and I think that it um, um, it it. Uh, carries over to your students. I think that energy, that passion kind of carries yeah. over to the students. Yeah. They know that you, you're you interested in what you're talking about. They know that you you mean what you say and, and they know that you know something about it. So you have a lot of credibility that way. Right, right. Uh, which, is, which is kind of organic. It's not something you can just uh, program. Right. right. Uh, yeah, I would say, I don't think you had the delivery of like George Lois. Uh, but you definitely had the delivery of passion uh, right. and depth and love for it. Well, I'll tell you one thing we did at the Vignelli Center. I, uh, this must have been about 2012 or 13. We ran up, Massimo was still alive, and well, they were still alive. And uh, so Massimo would come up to the center for one week in the summer and do a, a master designer workshop for. Uh, for, for young designers, not for students, but for young practicing designers. And we had a wonderful series of, of those over the years. But one summer, Massimo came up with George Lois. Wait a minute, together? <laughs> together. And, and they're the most, you know, the, George is in advertising, Massimo's in design. Uh, in terms of their own expertise, they're in different worlds. But they're both the same age. They're both top professionals. They have a lot, and they're great friends. So we had the most wonderful time for that week. I mean, it was it was hard with Lois there to keep the students focused. In the <laughs> but um, there's a wonderful video I have of uh, Massimo and George uh, just talking, have a conversation one evening, and uh, uh, and uh, of course Lois is just full of expletives every <laughs> other word. Um, and uh, getting him talking about the famous uh, Esquire cover series was just fabulous. We had them, we had the covers uh, um, uh, on the on the wall behind the two of them, so that George could talk about you know this one or that one. And uh, uh, there's so much interest, so many interesting stories relating to all that. But, yeah. but the chemistry was just fantastic between the two. I bet I can hear Massimo in my head with his sarcasm. Not quite the same as Lois's, but I'm sure he had some uh, wit. Well, of course, of course, you know, one of his, uh, um, one one of the uh, one of one of the people would ask him. Uh, I think they asked him that night, but uh, somebody did. You know, what was your, um, what what would you like to, um, what would be your uh, dream project of your career? And Mesmo said, uh, I'd like to do a new branding program for the Catholic Church. Would you keep the cross and we get rid of everything else? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it makes me ask this question that, you know, uh, we've asked many others. 
What do you think about notoriety in the design world? And is it useful to designers? You mean to have a following and to have a recognition and a style? Yeah. Is that what you mean by notoriety? Yeah. Yeah. You know, people recognize the name. They recognize the aesthetic and the style of the work when you mention the name. And Well, I think, I think when that happens because of uh, when I think a designer becomes um, uh, recognized because of the integrity of their work and their thinking, um, uh, I, I think it's a valid, uh, very valid and wonderful thing. I think uh, uh, I think there are from time to time uh, d- designers who try to achieve fame um, for the sake of fame, and I think that that's uh, problematic. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I want to ask you um, a question about women and their representation in graphic design history. Um, how important do you think is it that women be specifically represented in graphic design history? Well, um, I, I, you know, I don't really like to draw a distinction at all. Um, and unfortunately, the, uh, uh, the way the world has worked, and I'm not sure it's the fault of the graphic design community or the advertising community, um, that uh, women have not been recognized. But I think that if one um, uh, looks carefully at, at the history of design and starts to dig down under the surface, you find that there probably were as many capable, famous women designers working as there were men. Um, there's a famous um, picture that I use when I, from about 1940, 45, I think, with C.P. Pinellas at a meeting uh, with um, uh, uh, with a meeting with designers. And there's this whole room full of men in this one and CP. And I mean, that picture says the whole thing in terms of the state of of women being recognized. And of course there's, um, uh, and as I said earlier to you, there's so so many uh, great women that were contemporaries of CP that, that you never heard of. Um, that made great, great contributions in, in so many ways. And, and so I think that's an important um, reason for, for what you're, you guys are trying to do with this uh, film. And that is to uh, make people aware of, um, of a lot of these uh, great, great women designers that have been out there and, and doing great stuff. And, um, and it's true that, uh, that there were... Um, we're a lot of really great women designers. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really a shame that um, we don't know enough about them. Right. Yeah. Right. And so in tying these two things together about notoriety and role models and um, women representation, graphic design history, um, many of the young female students in my classes, they want to seek out those female role models. So, with the lack of, maybe it's not the lack of, or the the availability of histories on women in graphic design, how do you think that affects role models for young women designers or yeah. um, the importance well, of that? Cool. And is it changing, I guess? Well, this was the reason that I, uh, st- that I started that uh, 
Women Design Pioneers course was for that, you know, just to show young women students that, yes, there were great women out there. And I think it's also important for the for the men in the class to, to learn about that, too. Right, right. Uh, so, um, um, so I think the the more um, the more that this kind of thing can happen, uh, the better, and um, and uh, that's why uh, I, uh, I I feel strongly that uh, what you guys are trying to do is um, is is critical and important. Yeah. Would you be able to kind of share some of the stories of um, some of the outcomes from that course? specifically the you know the women in graphic design course and and how that's affected or even things, list or? some of the women that you talked about in that course well um first of all i had to have the archive and the and the original source artifacts in order to so that immediately limited the mm-hmm. number of um, um um women that i could treat and okay. so i actually had a, a laundry list so to speak of of uh of designers from the uh, mostly from the 30s and 40s and 50s that I created way back in 83 when we started the Cary Graphic Design Archive. And, um, uh, and, and so I kind of systematically worked my way through that list in terms of bringing collections to RIT. And it just happened to be that right at that decade and so forth, a number of these designers were passing away, and their families had to do something with the, with the uh, with their work. Uh, and so they were delighted to have a place like RIT to put their work. So it was a wonderful. The timing was perfect. Uh, and in terms of women designers, I worked my way. <laughs> I, I, in terms of the list itself, um, I, I really uh, I got everybody on the list that I wanted in the archive at RIT at Cary, um, except for there was one woman and um, um, that, I, that I really wanted to get and she was the last one on the list and I could not somehow make contact with her. Yeah, I was gonna ask you if there was one collection that you could bring in to the archives yes well the, one, the woman's name was Henrietta Kondak and I, I and she and I had um, I was in New York uh, at a conference in uh, at Bard College and I did a little talk and then this other woman elderly woman also did a talk and sat next to me at the, after the talk and it was Henrietta Kondak I'd been looking for her for years, and there she was right beside me. So we, we of course, hit up a nice conversation, and she eventually sent uh, a lot of her work to, uh, to the carry. And, um, and most of her work, most of her work was, was for CBS Records. She did record jacket covers, which were fantastic. Quite a wide range of style. But um, I was so happy to finally complete my list. Uh, with uh, with Henrietta Kondak, and uh, uh, and then we've had other uh, other opportunities that have come along uh, where we've added people to carry. And as the years went by, 
our, our collection focus kind of expanded from the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s up to much more contemporary. And then, of course, Vignelli's would be in the 60s and 70s. But, but you know, we, we have uh, like Rudolph the Herrick. We have some really great Paul Rand things. Um, and, um, uh, and, th and I think a nice representation of, um, of Elvin Lustig's work from Elaine. Uh, so it, it's, um, um, it's really a tremendous asset. And I think that uh, I've been blessed, I think, by having really great colleagues at the library and at Cary to work with. And they somehow have shared my passion and my dream for this. Yeah. And I don't think it would have happened without it, you know. Right. So if there, I got a twofold question for you. The first is, if there is one collection out there that you'd like to bring in, what is it? And then the second part of that question is, um, do you feel that the archive collections, both the Cary and the Vanelli uh, Center for Design Studies, do you, do you think they're well known enough or could, could there be more awareness? Well, I, th I think the word is out there. I think um, more, um, I think that, you know, we have people coming from all over the world that, to use the do research. Uh, there was an exhibit of, um, uh, in California at the Los Angeles College, uh, Los Angeles College, County College of Art, Los Angeles County Art Museum. Uh, and it was about West Coast designers and they wanted to, um, uh, one of the designers they were focusing on was Elvin Lustig. And, uh, and so they asked this British design historian to come and write and do a, uh, uh, do an essay on Lustig's work. And so where did he have to go? He had to come to RIT, RIT. to do the work for a West Coast uh, exhibit. Wow. And that's a pretty typical kind of a setup. Uh, in terms of people coming, and, and so it's been more and more and more over the years, uh, and um, and and that's really one of the great benefits of of uh, not only of just saving this great work, but also um, um, having it be used and and used mm -hmm. in different ways. Like I use it for my class in one way, and scholars come and use it in another way. Now, one thing I also need to add uh, to the conversation here. Uh, at the Vignelli Center, we started the Vignelli Center and launched it in 2010. So in 10 years at the Vignelli Center, we have the core exhibit of the core archive of Vignelli's, which is the heart of the center. But we've added collections beyond just Vignelli uh, to, to the Vignelli Center. So we have Terry and then we have Vignelli. And then we have also other collections at Vignelli. And now we think we have, I think we have close to 30 other collections. Wow. Now, some of these other collections are, are not uh, full archives. It might be like uh, 30 posters by Bruno Manguzzi or um, 100 posters by uh, Armando Milani. That's much more international at the Vignelli Center. Um, and uh, and, I've, and I just have a wonderful uh, donation coming in from England once the uh, COVID uh, clears a little bit it, uh, of work by the great German designer, Odo Eicher. Oh, wow. Designed the uh, Munich Olympics in 72. 
and uh, and was very instrumental in the Ohm school uh, in Germany. And uh, and so I'm very excited by um, by that collection. Uh, and also, I just received uh, uh, I think it was three of the uh, of Munich Olympic posters, the famous big posters. Um, uh, and so it's um, it's really exciting. And and, and uh, of course, we have a reputation for this now. So people want to have you know give their great stuff to uh, RIT, where it'll be taken care of, acknowledged. And some people do it for a tax deduction, and other people do it for good for good reasons. You know? Yeah. Uh, before I ask you my um, question, I got coming up here about the film. Uh, how does someone go about if they have an interest in looking at the archives? So if anyone's listening to the podcast and they're like, "Man, I've got to go out there," it's not just a a, a walk in and browse kind of. Uh, well, you can't browse an archive. It's it's impossible for a number of reasons. Um, I don't know if you ever tried to look at a whole drawer full of big posters, but it's very uh, physically laborious and and uh, damaging to the posters. Mm -hmm. um, so there has to be a control on that. And so the best way, if one wants to use an archive like that, is to get in touch with the school and with the, the archivist and, uh, and, and then make arrangements. Uh, and it always helps to kind of know what you want when, you're, when you come. For instance, you want to look at the BLREA posters or you want to look at... Uh, uh, Henrietta Kondak's records uh, jackets. Uh, and uh, and so then you would make an appointment and come in and then the archivist would get those materials out of the collection and they would spread them out and you could come in, in a reading room and, and do your research and so forth. And then, then they get put back there. That's so, usually the functional way it works. Right, right. And um, the white glove treatment. That's correct. Yep. So, so as we're, you know, working on documenting, you know, women in graphic design throughout America and, and making our arrangements to come visit you and the archives and do some filming and stuff like that. What would you like to see in that representation of women in graphic design history? Well, I think the, the, to start with, I think the, the, um, the uh, very careful selection of uh, which designers you're going to feature is going to be important and, and how that's organized, how the content of the film is organized uh, and what, what's really emphasized uh, uh, properly, you know, in terms of their work and their life and their, you know, their, uh, uh, their life experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because, you know, the uh, women designers, just like main men designers, have, have a life outside of their career. And that life outside can very much play a big part in, in, their, in their creative career. Um, so I, I think that would be the, the first priority. Um, okay. Again, I, I think that, uh, I think that, and again, I, I'm not... 100% familiar with how you two are um, or organizing this, but um, you know it could be uh, it could be organized according to different themes. It could be organized geographically. It could be organized organized according to time and chronology. Uh, 
And um, uh, and I think that's that's uh, those, those are big questions, organizational mm-hmm. questions for you. Right. I think you this would be way out ahead of actually doing any filming. Right. Right. Yeah, and we've started to get some of that documented on paper and uh, and know our approach. So it'll be exciting to share that with you uh, in the future. Yeah, um, it's a shame that uh, Philip Meggs passed away because he would be a great person for you to talk with. Right. Yeah, and we've had the opportunity. We um, had an interview for the podcast, and we're going to have a future interview uh, with Elizabeth and Libby. Um, so. I mean, we had a splendid conversation. There's a wonderful podcast on that. Yeah. And we're looking yeah, Libby, forward to talking to them. Yeah, Libby is uh, really a sweet woman. And, and Phil was a great guy. I miss him. Um, he was a real Southern gentleman. Now, another person you might want to talk with, uh, uh, and, and this is a little tricky, but uh, you might want to talk with Lou Danziger in California. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he's, uh, let's see, I think he's 95 or something. So he's, and he's not uh, terribly uh, good health. Um, but he is very um, opinionated. And so you'd really have, you really have to have your homework done before you interview him. Mm, okay. But I think he could, you know, he, he would have a very special, unique a view of, of what you're trying to do and, and the people and the women involved in it. He's, uh, because he was, uh, uh, he was uh, on the edge of that generation. The, the, uh, you know, the, the, like the Bill Golden uh, generation. Right. And, and Danziger was one of the first men to, uh, with Keith Goddard, with, with those two guys were the first that uh, taught history of graphic design. Yes, right, right. Um, so as we continue thinking about the film and planning for the film, are there any um, potential issues or problems that you, you can think of that we might be aware of as we continue to plan? I don't know how this works with a film, but I know with books it's a big hassle, and that is getting permissions to uh, show and reproduce things. So you'll want to be conscious of that. Uh, I would hope that um, uh, you might be able to uh, uh, seek out and get some kind of grant funding for what you're doing. I don't know if the National Endowment is still supporting stuff like this, but they, in the past, they've been really helpful to me. Mm-hmm. I believe uh, so from my research on that. Uh, and it could be that it could also be corporate spo- uh, sponsors, uh, right. paper companies, um, uh, are uh, also good. Uh, Mohawk Paper Company has uh, been very supportive of uh, of some good design history things. Wonderful. Hey, before we wrap up our conversation for the podcast, I always ask all of my guests to leave us with some words of wisdom. So, <laughs> if there's if there's design professionals, design faculty, and even students that are listening to the podcast. Um, what kind of words of wisdom do you want to send out? Well, I think, I think the um, uh, one uh, area that would be important would be to um, um, 
to look, keep your mind open to um, learning from other disciplines. Um, Brodovich said something like, um, uh, you know, um, uh, keep your fingers on the pulse of the times. And I, I like to interpret that to say that as a designer or uh, I think as any person that's intellectually curious at all, uh, you, you really need to keep your um, eyes and ears open for ideas and for influences from other disciplines. Um, you know, what can you learn from the world of psychology? That What can you learn from uh, the, the world of linguistics? Uh, um, it could be that sitting in the doctor's office, opening a magazine, you might find an article that could completely change your life. And so you want to always be on the lookout for opportunities to, uh, to um, expand your learning and your intellectual depth. That's wonderful. And I agree with you completely. I've had actually linguistics and psychology students come take uh, some of my graphic design courses and it's been so beneficial to the discussion in the classroom oh, yeah. uh, and added so much value for sure. I love that. Thanks, Roger. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we'll just about wrap up our podcast conversation here, but I'm going to ask you to hang online just so we can chat a little bit more offline okay. afterwards. But um, it's been such a pleasure seeing you again, catching up with you, <laughs> having you on the podcast, your yeah. depth of wisdom and knowledge uh, on graphic design and the history of graphic design and your teaching and your scholarly work as is, is something that inspires me and makes me want to thrive to do more. So well, that's good. You. That's great. We, we appreciate you and your time. Good. And it's nice to meet you, Amanda. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. Excellent. So thanks again, Roger. And, uh, and we'll be talking with you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode. The Design Deducts podcast can be found at designdeducts.com. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-D-E-D-U-X.com, where you can listen to the podcast or watch the video version of the podcast, as well as find links to the guests and the topics discussed during each episode. The Design Deducts podcast can be found on most podcast listening platforms. You can join us on social media through Instagram and Twitter via at design underscore deducts on Facebook as Design Deducts Podcast and join us on YouTube at Design Deducts for video versions of each episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can show your support on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash design underscore deducts. Once again, thanks for joining us and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.